In September of 2021, I started a conversation that I really didn't think would change my mind that much about the potential of virtual reality in education. Like you probably, I believe in all kinds of potential, but potential innovation doesn't usually make its way past the barriers that lie in the way of closing the gap between ideas and practice. Barriers like the cost, the training, the time for VR in a schedule that barely makes room for lunch and recess. I won't even get into art. Then I met Dr. Lavelle Brown in Ithaca, New York, who said, look, I spend more on hand sanitizer. And the way he framed math success as a social justice issue resonated. Only a month before, a widely shared article, at least among education geeks, was written in the Washington Post about civil rights leader and educator Robert Moses, who said in an interview with that author, math literacy will be a liberation tool for people trying to get out of poverty and the best hope for people trying not to get left behind. If you haven't yet, I'd encourage reading the article and giving episode number 94 of this show a listen, where this dialogue began. I'll link both in the notes. In this episode, I'm checking in with Prism's VR. And there, I was about to say fearless leader in a flip way, but then realized that launching the next phase of a startup in VR in a school year two of COVID, she really is pretty badass. I'm Anurupa, the founder and CEO of Prisms, and I'm currently endeavoring to reinvent a new way of learning math, utilizing experiential learning and virtual reality. I catch up with her about what Prisms VR has learned after a year of pilots and testing in districts all over the U.S., and no doubt with other visionaries like Dr. Brown from our earlier episode. 100% of their test sites are about to re-up with Prisms, and many more will launch in the coming school year. I get a lot of questions about the logo for this podcast. People often ask, what's with the ice cream truck? I think I've explained it before. It's definitely on the website if reading the about page. But I'll say again that part of the impetus for the show is to continue a famous dialogue started by educational psychologist Dr. Richard E. Clark, who likened what at the time was multimedia learning as no more responsible for delivering education than a food delivery truck is for delivering a child's nutrition. I'll give you a sec to think about that. The ice cream truck is a nod to Dr. Clark. To me, it was always a call to action for designers, educators, researchers to look beyond the medium in an effort to really understand what innovation lies in digital learning. That the technology of the time is no panacea. There's no such thing. That what we're looking for are the ways that new tools inspire and evolve innovative practices for engaging learners deepening the human experience of learning, and codifying critical skills for solving problems and improving life. This is one of those conversations, VR and education, that deserves our scrutiny, our celebration, and close dialogue with innovators who work hard to move things that feel out of reach for K-12 into reality, not at all virtually, but practically, and by targeting specific skills working alongside great educators as partners. Enjoy the conversation. This is No Such Thing, a podcast about learning in the digital age. I'm Mark Lesser. 
How was it being in schools and with educators and students this last year? Yeah, I think I think the problem was that initially we couldn't be with educators and teachers in schools because there were a, a variety of COVID protocols. And so trying to coach teachers and give them the, the love and the care that they need to take this huge step over Zoom was a challenge. I think that the moment that we were able to be back in schools, co-located, in the moment coaching with teachers, being there with them when they first take headsets out and learn to use the dashboard while students are immersed. I mean, if, if you have to kind of imagine what's going on, right? You have a classroom, you have 30 students in devices, they're moving, they're looking around, they're perturbing their environment, they're solving math problems in a very different manner. So because the process that the student is taking, the teacher has to be very mindful of the process that they're taking to both provide feedback and to monitor. And they, these are just fundamentally different actions to what they're typically accustomed to. So th there was no dearth of excitement and wanting to teach in this way. Um, but there's just a certain amount of tactical know-how that you need to do it with a level of success. Uh, because as we talked about last time, like what we're after is efficacious learning, not just kids playing around in VR for 45 minutes. Yeah. And the teacher plays a very important role in that. So I think being able to be once I think I would say in February mark is where things turned and we were school districts allowed us to be back in uh, on site with educators uh, in classrooms. And I felt like that's where the magic began to happen. Before that, we had teachers on Zoom with us. They were doing the best that they could. But um, to put to, to put a bow to put a bow on this one, what I really kind of came out of and became very com convicted about going into the next academic year is all new teachers to prisms. They need to be with us. We need to be with them in classrooms with their kids, uh, not doing kind of intellectual presentations over Zoom because that's not how you that's not how you change practice. So let me just ask ask you to follow up on that. So so from what you've maybe it's what you've learned in the last year, but more likely it's what you're drawing on, not just from the last year with PRISMS, but also your background in districts. And um, so so tell me, what, how do you approach changing practice? Um, what do you think are the most important? If there are two or three things that are most important in changing practice, what do you think they are? I think the first is um, unstructured and the second is structured. The first is teachers need an authentic set of time. Uh, they, they need some time. Uh, to just simply learn in this new way themselves. When we jump into pedagogy from the beginning or like what their role is in implementing from the get-go, they haven't had that authentic student experience to always be empathetic around like what the student would be going through. So the first thing we always do with teachers, the first three hours is them just from soup to nuts doing our modules. So what does it mean to go from a physical real world first person actor experience and then create data visualizations, simulations, tables, charts, they need to do that themselves in a very unstructured way to understand the, the different tools and how to do that. The second is the structure. So, okay, you now understand purely from a learner's perspective what this means. What does it now mean from a teaching perspective? There are three parts to that. One is really understanding the prerequisites uh, to, to being successful with that content. I think a lot of the reasons why EdTech tools either was, um, look to like bottom out hints where they over scaffold like you'll see a lot of the math that tech tools they're, they're they're good but what they do is when kids struggle they literally give them the answer mm. and so 
uh, one of the one of the ways to really get away from that is to make sure that teachers have done enough of the work with the prerequisite checks prior to kids getting in so that the kids can in, can really engage in that grade level content. Of course, we have hints and 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 supports in there that that review old material, but we don't want to kind of absolve educators of that of of that um, uh, pre uh, requisite work. Then once kids are in, uh, there's uh, a lot of work to be done around understanding where students are and using our pre-populated high bandwidth questions to send feedback at the right time. And that's a highly kind of now the teacher is doing the work of an analyst and 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 really using their perception powers to understand who are the kids I want to prioritize, why, when do I want to intervene? VR is a highly, highly visual medium, as you know. So students tend to persevere for a little bit longer. And so we have to kind of pause teachers' instincts to kind of jump in too early because we found that if they're if, if they kind of hold off a little bit longer, even if kids don't get to, to get to the destination, teachers have a little bit more fodder to help kids along. And then the third big part of, of um a high quality execution is then the discussion. Our tool is not a just a teaching tool, it's a discourse tool. Once kids put that those headsets down, the amount of thoughts and conjectures and things that are swirling in their head, teachers have a beautiful moment to visualize all that learning at the front of the room mm. and help and help kids build connections between their ideas. And it, it's it's funny because as I've been, um, you know, we're working towards a consumer uh, a version of our product. And one of the things that we've really learned about our current product is that it's very, very much a teacher tool. And it's, 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 it's for educators to drive, you know, these rich visualizations, these rich interactions that are new memories of what it is to do a mathematical procedure um, and then use that shared experience to really draw unique insights that kids may not have using paper, pencil, or a textbook. That that creative thought may not have ever been uh, triggered and really learning to draw those lines between ch- students' thoughts and have them be the drivers of that discussion. So I would just kind of like, you know, we've learned that these are the big pieces. Teachers have to play. They have to know the content. They have to play the student's role. They have to know their, what their role is then as um, the analyst during the the experience and when to intervene, when not to intervene, um, and then what is their role to drive that discussion in the end. And what's great, uh, Mark, is that this through line of prepar- intellectual preparation for a teacher is highly transferable to a lot of less a lot of types of lessons, not just VR. So we're yeah. building a an incredible muscle, uh, not just for virtual reality instruction, but for instruction for any task-based learning, for any problem-based learning, which um, you know is 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 all across our curriculum. What's the commitment that a school needs to make in order to give teachers that room to play? Right, because that I would imagine is one of the hardest parts. When you enter a school, if you don't enter a school with a strong agreement about what it really takes to change practice on this, then I would imagine you end up in a pile of ed tech, right? Um, what's the agreement look like and, and or the commitment look like on the part of, I guess, principals, maybe districts um, to sort of carry out those three? I love the way you put it. Let teachers play, let teachers structure, and then... Um, let teachers think about what the most powerful ways to follow on those lessons 
or those experiences, I should say, are. Did I get that right? Yeah, yeah. The the play, the uh, providing just in time feedback at the right times, and then driving high quality discussion from a shared experience. Yeah. So, what's the commitment look like? I mean, or has that not been a problem? Like, do you? Uh, Maybe you have a magical experience that I don't where you walk into a school and teachers are like, sure, I got crazy time. I think that that's one of the main reasons why we don't play at the school level. We play at the district level um, and, and districts that we're signing on with. I mean, we are still working with early adopters. We're in the, some of the largest districts in the U.S. as well as medium, as well as rural. So we're across the gamut in terms of the type of districts and student populations we serve. But I have found that districts more than ever are very sensitized to the fact that you just can't throw resources in classrooms. And it's almost like they are pushing us to say, what is the teacher preparation? Because I can't buy one more thing that we're not going to use in year two or year three, because teachers, A, never found value, B, never learned how to use it, and C, we couldn't drive efficacy. So what, you know, what what validation do we have to keep using it? And that doesn't, just because an, a product didn't, in, you know, lead to increased learning outcomes, that doesn't necessarily mean that always that the product is bad. It just means that teachers didn't learn how to use it effectively and integrate it effectively into, into their work. So we have not, we've actually had the opposite problem. School districts, like we just had one school district that just signed on for 50 days of PD. Um, another one signed on for 20 days of PD. So we don't have an issue around time. I think it's the issue around, well, what do we spend that time doing? And I think that we stayed away from having teachers come to a conference room and like philosophize and, and you know, sit with themselves and uh, not to diminish that. I think that has a role, but that's not what we're doing. And so our PD is in the classroom. Um, we actually do on-site and, and we'll be there for a day and we get into every teacher's classroom. We, we co-teach with them. Yeah. And it's through learning like our instincts, providing that in the moment feedback, what we tell, what we tell t- kids, what we tell teachers to do with kids, like in that moment of struggle is when you have to catch them and provide them a high quality uh, and interesting insight or question or hint to help them find their way. And that's what we found a lot of success with teachers being with them while they're executing. It takes a little bit of logistics on our end to make sure that the day they're teaching prisms were there. And so it's a lot of calendaring, a lot of operations, but I think it's worth our time in these first couple of years to be as invasive as possible. Based on your experience so far, do you think that VR in the context, we're talking in in the context of math, which I just want to carve out again for folks who are listening. We're not, we're not talking about just like, because people tend to generalize about VR and sort of like dream about it as um, too big a context to, to get practical. Um, So based on your experience so far, if somebody was interested in making an argument about the value of school post-COVID or um, on the contrary, you know, people who want to argue that COVID proved that school is not important, you know, the, the physical space itself. Do you feel like your experience over the last year says something about one of those two arguments and and if so do you feel like it it validates something in a new way 
you get my question? I do. I think the truth is often in the middle. And so I, I really struggle with, with both arguments and, and people that feel so convicted about remote versus um, yeah. in person. What I will say is I'm bringing my team back to the office just to kind of, as an aside. Uh, we are all going to be co-located, negotiating our differences, feeling our energetics, and being human beings in a shared space together. And that's my decision as a CEO. Everybody's going to have different takes on that. As it relates to schooling, I think that my biggest takeaway is that uh, for two things. One, for really authentic conversations about, about constructivist mathematics, especially for children, I don't see a world in which that happens with our current digital tools. So it's not to say that doesn't exist in the future, but right now, I want my kids back in schools. Yes, they are in VR, but the VR is not to take them away from their peers the, or physically take people away from each other. The VR is because we don't have tools to help them visualize abstractions in different ways. So I'm very, very categorical about what I'm building and why. Mm. We're building using VR, not because we need everybody at home with headsets on, at, you know, in their living rooms by themselves. That's not why prisms exist. Prisms exist because kids have historically not had real world applications of math. And there's no better way to understand the real world application than making yourself a part of that situation versus seeing it passively play out for someone else. Secondly, there's no better way to experience mathematics than using visual kinesthetic tactile manipulatives, which have been really great for K-5, but diminished as kids went through their education. As you went to high school and college, those manipulatives disappeared and human beings didn't evolve out of needing to move and reason spatially that these are still things and ways that we make sense of the world. So that's all to say that our use of VR has not been around remote versus hybrid versus in-person. It's been a pedagogical value. And that pedagogical value is couched in the context of in-person instruction, where kids do problems together and then look at each other in the eye and have a great conversation and 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 converge upon, upon learning together. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And I think... I think think a lot of things about it um maybe and not to put not to put words in your mouth but what it makes me think is that for an educator who maybe during covid starts to get worried that like oh you know covid's going to make my job irrelevant what you just said makes me feel like in a very unique way what prisms is showing is that actually is proving something that's been tested over and over, which is that the technology alone is not going to change schooling drastically or practice drastically. However, um, there is technology that can be a new chapter for educators who are yearning for growth in their role and growth in the way they do their jobs and the and the practice of teaching, in this case, uh, math concepts, um, that actually deeply validates what they do, which is 
um, to do the things we all give a lot of lip service to, like personalize and make engaging and um, and uh, do those artful step in in those moments that you just described, that artful sort of like knowing when to step in and like draw something out or or push or whatever it is. It's that very human um that very human thing that robots don't do well uh, without just giving the answer. So anyway, a long way of just saying, I really love what you just said. And I feel like the one really cool thing from my perspective about prisms growing in the time that it's growing outside of all the struggles of like trying to get into schools at this moment is just that it um, it's an interesting conversation for us to continue to come back to about how tools like this might actually prove that there is a new chapter beyond COVID that's not more of the same. Um, it uses what we know about what's great about historically what we've done in public ed- or in education K-12 generally, um, but it also leverages new technology to make practice and make engagement for students really uh, next level. So. That was a statement, I've not a never, question. I've never been. No, I, 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 I love your digestion of of this of this of this topic. I've never been more convicted that there's no conversation about this personalized model without an adult, without a trained facilitator, what we call a teacher, right? But there are tutors or other um, ways in which students receive support. Um, uh, outside of the formal classroom, but I've just been, I'm, I'm now very confident that what we will build will be a, a tool for teachers, not a tool for kids to kind of sit on their own by themselves and learn content, because that's not why kids struggle. It, kids don't just struggle because there isn't access to information. That's not the reason they struggle. They struggle because they don't know the path for how to process that, make sense of it on their own, and then learn to share that with another person, crash their thinking against other people, feel friction, and and learn and grow as a human being. That doesn't happen with you just sitting and watching videos or what. And it could be the greatest product ever. Like, I mean, mm-hmm. this is not in any way kind of relegating existing ed tech products in a, in a, to, a, to a lower place. But I think that the, the role of technologists in education is to create tools that educators can modulate for their instructional purposes, could, which could be dialogue and discourse. It could be visual reasoning. It could be kind of greater conceptual understanding, whatever it is. But I just want to be really clear with you that, yes, my end, end, end user is our, t- our students, but when, when my team and I sit down, we design for the teacher. And that is, it might sound like a minute difference to you, but it's it has significant impact on, on how we design our product. Yeah. Give me a quick state of the product now. I know there's been some new seed funding, which seems super exciting. And, and the way that we just discussed your um, uh, extensive summer break would suggest that growth is, um, growth is a just, where things are, but but give us a state of the the union on uh, Prisms as a company and and kind of what does the next six months look like? Yeah, so we're launching um, our revised algebra and geometry libraries. Um, it went through extensive co-design 
Uh, we launched across 25 school systems and 25,000 students this past academic year to really go through a rigorous year. It was our first year, um, rigorous year of co-design and um, really making all the changes that teachers and kids need for this to be an effective um, modality and, and material in their classroom. We feel really confident that what we are now putting out for next year is leaps and bounds um, ahead of what we shared last year. And so we're now going to be launching to over 70 school systems uh, this month. Uh, and the focus is to really train the next army of geometry and algebra teachers. So we are not only expanding in all of our existing districts, all the districts we were in last year renewed. So that's, it's, it's kind of a great sign. That's amazing. Yeah, it's 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 a great sign of kind of the value that that teachers felt they 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 got from 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 prisms, um, but we are also uh, releasing middle school math and high school algebra two in December. We're giving a sneak peek of those some of those modules this summer, so that middle school math teachers and algebra two teachers can begin using some of the modules in the fall before they get the full uh, library in the spring. And then we are rapidly building out currently um, grade six, seven to 11 science. So we're building biology, physics, chemistry. Those will all release next July. And then uh, we will also be releasing um, high school calculus um, and multivariable calculus so that we can begin to really get some of our uh, students who may be accelerated, but really are not having a meaningful math education because we, you know, we look at our students who have lower proficiencies as evidenced by exams. And yes, like there, there's a big need to service those kids, but even our kids that are just flying through, they're not necessarily going on to contribute to the mathematical sciences. They're not building rich connections with these disciplines. So I think, you know, our mission is beginning to really expand to moving beyond the algebra one crisis and really getting secondary right to then really following some of our more advanced kids and making sure that they have deeper connections. Hmm. Um, in terms of, uh, you know, everything I've said so far is really focused on the schools market. As I mentioned, we are also working on a consumer version uh, that allows kids to then come home after they've like learned the content with their peers and their teachers. How, what is what what do they need at home to be able to continue to use multimodal tools, continue to continue to use that way of sense making as relevant? Because as you go up, um, as, as you work towards gaining speed, efficiency and fluency, VR won't be the most efficient, right? Because VR slows your thinking down. It makes you look at things more deeply. Hmm. And once kids are now kind of down the road where their goal is, hey, I got I to gotta do these problems fast. I got to get ready for the test. VR becomes less and less um, uh, a tool that you need at that, at that stage of learning. So we've been learning kind of doing a lot of research and doing tons of focus groups and, and, and work with kids around the country around, you know, what is, what is the role of VR at different phases and as such, what is an effective consumer product for kids to continue to drive value at home and moving away from just like, you know, having a, an additional tool for, 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 for kids, but tutoring services and teachers that are looking for remediation, for, uh, parents who are looking for remediation for their kids. What does that look like if there's no teacher to modulate? Because again, I made this big uh, hypothesis that you need the teacher for things like this to be successful. And in the absence of a teacher, what must, what features have to be available um, for it to be successful at, in an, in an at-home setting? So mm. those are some of the things that we're wrestling with in terms of our, this very important market segment on the consumer side, but we're driving, you know, um, hundred miles an hour on the school side, just developing content, training teachers, 
and just continue to grow as as fast as a rate as we can because um, the last thing I'll say here is WestEd just completed our first efficacy study. Um, we're being kind of very uh, stepwise um, in in how we approach evaluation. So we started with feasibility, which told us is it is it feasible for a teacher to take out thirty devices in a forty five minute period, finish the lessons, and kids learn something mm. and it absolutely ascertained that it is feasible. There was um, a lot of evidence around teachers saying that uh, content, kids learned it so much faster. So we were actually getting time back in our unit. Usually it took us three to four weeks to teach exponential functions. Kids got it in a week. And so they were they were discovering that when you learn in this fashion, reteaching goes down and that structural reasoning springboards everything else that comes after that. So the feasibility study was very successful and, and now kind of paves the path for the next set of studies that WestEd is conducting for us, which is an implementation study that is validating what are all the ways in which teachers use VR um, in their curriculum. And then our randomized control trials are beginning in August um, across 36 sites that will validate how much better and faster do kids learn math concepts, but you know, in a more empirical way than the feasibility study treated the, the topic. How many, this past year, how many districts were part of, there's 70 in the coming year coming on board. How many in 24. the past year? 24. 24. 100% of 24 districts District. signed back on. So seems like one of my early concerns when we talked last was, which I'm sure was your concern, is feasibility. It sounds like 100% um, sign me back up is a pretty good yeah. indicator that um, maybe that concern is old school. I don't know. It's exciting. Yeah, I mean it's a really exciting. We had one high school that didn't, but they were not a part of a district, which is why I, I said at the beginning that we, what I've learned is when you're trying to do change management, it's best to do it at a district level because you need the resources to PD. You need folks that are going to support teachers. There needs to be an app. There needs to be an apparatus. So all of our district partners resigned. There was one high school that was not a district partner and they didn't. And we learned a lot about just there was no internal champion there. There was there was just no one there to kind of support teachers because someone needs to clear time and make sure there's planning time for this. Yes. Prisms can't do that. Prisms is an external body. So um, yes, a hundred percent of our school districts uh, resigned. That's amazing. So I want to I want to read this thing to you uh, from um, Something you said earlier made me want to dig into this with you a little bit. Um, so Donald Schoen, is that a is that a familiar so scholar uh, prominent in the eighties, like the late seventies, eighties, uh, MIT academic, um, and he did a lot of work on like uh, urban planning, and um, but he also did a lot of work in like in professional. Uh, theory around professional study, study and growth. So, um, and one of the things that he contributed that engaged me really early on in my sort of professional journey as an educator was reflective practice. He's like one of the um, big thinkers and framers of reflective practice as a as a meaningful way forward for professionals who are looking to grow. So. This quote, I 
happened upon because I wrote it down in a notepad and then I took a picture of it. And I was scrolling through photos to find my uh, my COVID um, vaccination my, my card. vaccination card. And with two days ago, and I found this quote, and I was like, "Oh my God, I'm talking to Anna Rupa. This I gotta, I have to share this quote." So, this is a an excerpt. Um, he says, "Every profession depends upon a virtual world. Every kind of professional education requires a virtual world in which you can practice and do it again and again." and which you must learn to manipulate in such a way that it becomes transparent to you. So I wanted to read that to you because I'm, I, that was 19, a lecture he gave in 1989. Um, and he was actually talking about sketch, like writing in a sketch pad as an architect and, and the way that that as a virtual world feeds the expertise of then translating something, whether you are an aspiring architect or an aspiring doctor into, and I thought, um, my goodness, if we were as serious about math concepts, um, the way you instinctively are as a former educator, if we, if we thought that way about this as a virtual world, the same way that we think a sketch pad is important to the aspiring architect it just felt so powerful. And I wanted to read it to you and just get your reaction. Yeah, yeah I think, I mean, it, it like spoke to my soul. Um, and this idea, Mark, of a, of a space for practice, um, unfortunately in VR, if it's not very well thought out, you're going to get just kids not knowing what to do in that they haven't, let me give you one example. I was playtesting with a group of students in um, in California a couple weeks ago, and one of the students said, "I just can you just give me some? Can you just give me a paper pencil? I just want to go solve the equation hmm. because that's the those are the tools that she has used for fifteen years. Mm-hmm. She was a, she was she was an older high school student, so of course when we now tell her to use these other ways of practice." and other ways of reasoning and sense-making with your environment, she doesn't have muscle memory for that. Mm-hmm. And so what it really kind of began to inspire me it just is to go as low as I can, you know, because when you think about like integer operations, fractions, these are all highly abstract ideas. A number is an abstraction, right? And most students don't know where these came from. They just memorize these representations that people over millennia have, 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 have come to agree upon. Mm-hmm. And it greatly limits, you know, a, a student's ability to create. So I think that there are like a bunch of things that came up as you were talking. And one is yes to helping kids, you know, create these new novel worlds and redefining what it means to practice. But that actually requires a lot of practice to do that. <laughs> and we got to start hitting kids with these tools earlier in life so that they don't become so married to these kind of monodimensional ways of doing things yeah. where they themselves feel so limited. Yep. Yeah. And um, it's interesting as a designer in the digital space to think about the, how we scaffold as part of the product, a move to new tools. So in other words, like does there need to be a sketch pad in the virtual world, which feels very counterintuitive because it should be, you know, 
something new. Um, But to what extent do we need to sort of mirror some of the old tools in the new tools until we can phase them out as like a matter of scaffolding through the design? Is that something you guys talk about? A hundred percent. So we have writing tools in our environment. And one of them is a diagramming tool. The the fun thing about diagramming in VR is you get to diagram multiple panels, you get to diagram 3D visualization. So that takes like just kind of a, a, a layer up. But we've been thinking a lot about the role of just having a notepad mm. because kids as as a transition, they have to be able to kind of jot notes down. That's how they've been taught to memorialize. And now they've lost their ability to memorialize things in VR because they can't go to their, their standard instincts. So there is a lot of, and, and, and I don't know if we would ever phase that out. I think there's still a lot of value in being able to note things down and write down and manipulate on paper. And having that affordance in VR is going to give people more comfort to want to go into these spaces of, okay, as I learn to navigate these new things, I have some of the old. And oh, by the way, that old isn't bad. I'm not trying to phase it out. The old will always have a place. It's just being augmented by these other representations of thought. Mm. I could talk to you for a, for an extra hour, but I want to get to the, I want to get to one um, area that I wanted to return to since our first conversation. Um, you, before you use the phrase, the crisis of algebra, and there is a very specific line in on your website, definitely in your that first blog post from back when we first talked, where you were sort of laying out the roadmap for the year. And it talked about this article from the Washington Post and Bob Moses. And it was all about, uh, the the quote was core civil rights issue. And it was talking about algebra and math and these skills. Um, And I wanted to ask you, you know, there was... um, serendipity in the timing of that article where it was like uh this amazing support of prism's momentum but i wanted to give you the opportunity to share with people the extent to which that is still at the top of your mind and not a soundbite right that um you and you sort of you got us there by saying the crisis of algebra so but I wanted to give you an opportunity to reflect a little bit and talk about the extent, and maybe it's not, but I'm guessing it is, the extent to which this is still a core driver and value of what it is you're trying to put into the world as the lead of a team who's passionate about this. I think that the Algebra One library remains, it's it's what we've put the most amount of time into, it's what we've put the most amount of research um, resources into, because study after study after study comes out that it is one of the key predictors of future earnings post-college mm-hmm. and, and, and life outcomes. And I think that I haven't taken enough time to really understand why that is, but and I, I just kind of took, I took that, that statistic and ran with it. Um, but we still continue to see the market share of our districts wanting to focus on algebra. Now the challenge, Mark, is that to be successful in algebra, there are prerequisites that kids are not coming in with, i.e. ratio proportions, fractions, operations. Um, And so what we've done is 
in order to ensure our algebra library is actually successful, we had to immediately start production on our middle school library. Mm. And so that's the sweet spot that we're working in right now, which is grades seven to 10 um, math. Uh, and one of the reasons why it looks like we're diluting into science and getting into other topics is that as we started to get into schools, other departments were saying, why does math get this? Why mm. do why did we get to experience? And it became a bit of an equity issue between departments and teachers and kids. Mm -hmm. So we didn't want that sort of um, we didn't want prisons to be fostering that dynamic. And so we wanted to say, hey, we're going to put out all the content but we're going to still continue to work with districts and boards across the country to close the algebra gap. And we have, to, I, I'm not going to name them by name, but there are many districts right now where there's a board mandate for algebra one. Hmm. And they've tried everything under the sun over the past 10 years. And they're putting a lot of hope into prisons because of the conceptual rigor that underlies why we're doing what we're doing. Now, again, our RCT hasn't come out yet, but we had a lot of evidence in year one of kids learning these algebraic concepts faster, better, in a more sticky and convicted way. And now what the role of prisons is, is to scale it. Because we we did it with 25, we had 25,000 kids, not every single student, you know, used it all five modules with, a le with the level of fidelity we needed because we were training. Mm. And the first half of the year was COVID. So prisons has a tall, tall order this year, going back to like the charter and what, what you named mm -hmm. of, for all of our algebra one kids, we have to prove that this can be a solution for you to really depart from what your experiences and memories have been of Algebra 1. Because if we can't change the emotional stance towards math, no, no amount of like intellectual know-how is going to work. They have to fundamentally like have a different relationship with the subject matter. Yep. And that's, that's what I'm really hoping that prisons will do. And we're in a lot of alternative high schools across the country. So these are students who are Older will be ready to kind of age out of of, of, the, of their public school system, and so we are we're with a lot of demographics. Follow our story because we're very convicted to you know close these learning gaps for all learners instead of you know just getting the wins with kids that are you know easier to support because they're we're catching them earlier in their journey. Like we we really want to be able to live up to the promise that we made and be a real solution and that's going to require us to continue yes we did a, a big round of edits going into this academic year but i surmise we will have another huge set of product updates and changes going into next year because going from twenty-five thousand kids to a hundred thousand kids is a very very different scale um and so we're just really really excited um to do that work alongside our our schools and teachers it's great one of the things that i find really clever about the way the approach has been framed in the last year is that content is intended to address bottlenecks and, and stuck points as opposed to the whole curriculum. Is that going to continue to be the approach moving forward? Yes. There's no dearth of great core curricula out there. Uh, we're not here to build a core. We're here to get to core fragilities in understanding and, and bridge those and do it in a pedagogically effective way. Because what we're finding is if we can do that, Algebra 1 is five topics. Mm -hmm. We have modules on all five of them, like four, five key units of study is what I intend to say. If our modules can do their job, everything else in a teacher's core curriculum will be fluid. And I think that's what we seek to do is make that easier versus try to be, be, the, be the thing, be the primary resource. Yeah. Anarupa, this has been so much fun. And I could 
easily talk for another uh, episode's worth of questions, but um, I want to let you go and get on to the tons of exciting stuff that's going on and uh, wish you, I, I hope there is a little bit of a, uh, you get some time to breathe over the summer, but in the meantime, I'm really excited to talk again um, and I hope you'll come back and talk more about how things are evolving. And one of the things I really appreciate is that uh, you are here to talk. Um, you're obviously a great spokesperson for what you all are doing at Prisms, but also we can have some real talk about what's working and what's not and feasibility and the kinds of questions that you know we need to be open and transparent about as we go yeah. if we're going to get better at designing mm-hmm. real solutions. So thank you. And um, I can't wait to continue the conversation in the future. Thank you so much, Mark, for facilitating authentic conversations. For more info about advertising with us, sponsoring the show, or if you have story ideas you want to share, find me on Twitter at M.A. Lesser. The tracks in this podcast were produced by Leroy Tindy, a guest in episode zero, alumni of two bomber nations, Ithaca and the Bronx, New York, and engineer of digital things and fresh beats. Find him on SoundCloud at Air Tindy Beats. No such thing is produced by me, Mark Lesser. A learner like you and our show notes can be found at nosuchthingpodcast.org.